Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show out there in listener land, and what a show we have for you today. Of course, your host, Sherry DeNovo, as always. Uh, second half of the show, we've got our usual left lefter leftist panel, a little bit abbreviated today, uh, not the whole hour, because we wanted to make room for our guests in the first half of the hour, who are two amazing superstars of the activist movement, really, uh, based in the city, not only in the city. We have on the show, Andrea Vasquez Jimenez, uh, who is part of an organization, uh, in short, Lion, but Lion, I like to say, but Latinx Afro America Abya Yala Education Network. And the point of it was to get cops out of schools. And guess what? They won. So we're going to talk about that a lot. And then also, I'm pleased to have with us uh, Jules Vodrick Hunter, and she's going to talk about showing up for racial justice, another organization that is really focused on defunding police and what that means and working that through the political process. So we're going to talk about that as well. Um, so do not change the dial if you're listening on radio and do not pause or go away if you're listening on podcast. It's going to be exciting. First, uh, Andrea, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Lovely to have you here. Thank you for having me here. So talk about your organization. How did it start? How, how did you get involved in it? Yes, so uh, currently um, I am the co-director of LATN, which is the Latinx Afro-Latin America Avia Yala Education Network alongside co-director Silvia Argentina Arouse. Uh, we've been co-directors uh, for now going on to almost six years. Um, prior um, to even getting involved in regards to police uh, free schools uh, movement uh, was, uh, our main focus was on dismantling anti-Blackness um, and anti-Genity both within and outside of our Latinx communities. And that is something that we still um, push for um, along with all forms of liberation. In regards to getting involved um, within a movement for police free schools, our, particularly, our particular entry point for pushing for police free schools really comes out of the result of youth. It was students, youth themselves, voicing at one of our conferences, I believe in our Lion Conference in 2014, and they were the ones saying how they felt uh, seeing police on their school grounds. Um, they were talking to us about how they were being mistreated. They were talking about their fears, they were talking about intimidation, and we knew that this had to be immediately part of our three-year action plan. So what was the first part of your three-year action plan? How did you get all of this off the ground? Because organization to get results is something that we really need more of on uh, in activist circles and on the left. So talk about that, first steps. Yeah, 100%. So uh, the initial first steps that we had was really actually starting with information um, in, circles, we had community information sessions and community call to actions. We had noticed that actually a lot of parents, caregivers, students and educators themselves weren't even aware that they had uh, police in school programs. So we were able to disseminate information, we were able to um, garner other um, individuals that were interested in pushing uh, for police free schools. And this also was a particular point that at La N, um, we 
it was our first time, um, you know, of being involved in multiracial coalition building alongside uh, folks such as Showing Up for Racial Justice Toronto. We worked alongside as well with Black Lives Matter Toronto, um, educators uh, for peace and justice. Um, there also had Jane Jackson Against Poverty, as well as um, Education on Incarceration, which Silvia Gentil and myself had also co-founded. And so it definitely was a coalition building and really strategizing collectively and knowing that we will win because we do definitely um, utilize the Black Lives Matter Toronto, we will win as a social justice framework and really galvanizing uh, the relationship building that we had already done at the Toronto District School Board uh, in order to be able to speak with executive superintendents uh, and those uh, with higher authority uh, spaces and privileges within that school board. I'm gonna come back to you, Andrea, but I wanna to talk to Jules too. So show up for racial justice. Talk about the inception of that. What is that and how did it come about? Yeah, so uh, showing up for racial justice um, in Toronto was started just after Trump was elected in 2016. Um, and it's part of a broader chapter that began in the States. Um, so I, I joined Surge only about a year and a half ago. So I wasn't part of the founding team, but Surge's goals is to move white people into action through community organizing, mobilizing, education, um, all with being accountable to black, indigenous and people of color led movements. Um, our focus is definitely just on encouraging white people to take a personal and collective step to end white supremacy. Now, when I talked to Dan also of your group, um, his focus was really on similar to Andrea's to defunding the police in part or, you know, getting them out of schools. Um, but um, talk about that a little bit. Like, how did that come about as a focus? Yeah, for sure. So um, over the year of COVID, pretty much, um, Surge has been meeting online and doing a lot of um, phones apps for mutual aid and uh, COVID related things. And then sort of in May, June, when the uprising started, um, ideas around Black um, echoing Black Lives Matters demands to defund the Toronto police by 50%. Um, there's a, a team of campaign organizers um, and they've now mobilized people in each ward of the city um, to do, um, putting up posters. We're doing phone zaps every Monday, which is like a uh, phone zap is calling and emailing your counselors and talking to them why it's so important to defund the Toronto police by 50%. Um, and ultimately, like in short, the goal is that on the budget vote on February 18th is that city council will put forward a motion to defund the police by 50%. Um, Do you know if that's going to happen? Is anybody going to put forward that motion? I don't know yet. I hope so. <laughs> well, we live in hope, but uh, I, right now I, I should say also to the listeners out there, you're listening to the Radical Reverend show uh, either on podcast or on the radio. And um, uh, today we're, we're talking uh, both to Andrea and Jules about movements, uh, one to defund the police and to, of course, stand alongside BIPOC folk but also um, a successful venture to get them out, to get cops out of schools, which uh, we, we, we really wanna focus on because we wanna win this. Um, interestingly enough, you'll also be privy if you're listening, um, whenever you're listening, that city council seems very, very close to funding a pilot project. Now it's a very small one. It's in a very small part of the city, uh, but really it's about community response teams those who will go out instead of the police on mental health 
related calls. This has been a huge call from the community and a lot of the police calls are mental health calls. So presumably if this works a little bit, there's funding behind it, it can broaden. Um, Andrea, to get back to you, uh, talking about getting cops out of schools and actually both of you, whoever wants to weigh in on this, you're up against a formidable organization, the police. <laughs> They're well-funded, they've been there forever. Um, a lot of particularly white people get very frightened when you talk about defunding and the A word, as I call it, even abolition. People get very frightened. And I'm sure you came across this with your organizing. So Andrea, what did you do with that? Like what, what were some of the, what, what did you say when people said, what, you know, then no police will all be unsafe. You know, people break into our houses and take everything. What, what were your responses to that? So our entry point as police-free school organizers, um, you know, we utilize you know, the framework and let folks know that, you know, just like one of our partners in the U.S. Alliance for Educational Justice, we do take up the collective police-free schools campaign definition, um, which is, um, quote, dismantling school policing infrastructure, culture, and practice, ending school militarization and surveillance, and building a new liberatory education system. And that this indeed is part of abolition. It is part of a, a long grassroots organizing struggle. Um, and, and the reality is when we, when we talk about folks who, who are you know, instilled in fear um, and in the status quo, we really talk to them about how police free schools um, is already a reality um, in many spaces. Uh, all we have to do is really look at, you know, rich white suburban areas. Not all educational spaces actually have police and school programs. So what it really is talking about, it's about actually ensuring that we have um, properly funded, properly resourced, public, healthy, equitable police and policing free school educational spaces. And that this really is um, not necessarily a decision that the police really can have power over if we actually have elected Ontario government, um, they have the jurisdiction. So all what we really need is to have the political will of our elected government to mandate provincially to actually amend the provincial model for a local police and school board protocol uh, which is in regards to the police and school programs at the you know, kindergarten to grade 12 level, regardless of their names, whether it's school resource officer program, school engagement team, officer support program, um, but as well as um, you know, the Police Services Act to be amended in regards to the special constable program. And another name for that is campus police. Or we also still see, you know, a police also within uh, TTC, within transit area. So what we're talking about is reducing the scope of police and policing. And that inevitably, this is actually, you know, this is a labor issue. This is a union issue. This is a human rights issue. And it is actually mostly fiscally responsible and best practice based. So if we're actually looking at the research and looking at what is most fiscally responsible, um, this is it, ensuring that we have police-free schools. 
Okay, a couple of questions that I'm going to go back to Jules. Um, you know, it, it used to be called the Elephant Patrol. I know in my day or when my kids were littler, <laughs> of police in schools. And, and it was like, oh, the nice officer who stands at your corner and now he's going to get to know you and he's going to be your friend. So I want, want you to talk uh, if, if, you know, if that kind of rose up. And also the police are unionized. So you spoke about this as a union issue. So did you get any pushback around that? So those two things, Andrea, if you could address them. Those are the types of myths that we definitely work to debunk, right? Um, some schools that we've gone to, um, they'll, they'll say, well, we only have it in some schools, not in all schools, or some other uh, school boards will say, well, we have them in all schools, not in some schools. But the reality is that it still maintains this impact. And what is definitely worrisome are these narratives, right? Uh, which I think it's so important what Showing Up for Racial Justice Toronto is doing in regards to its kids and youth reimagining uh, of police-free spaces is because we do have to break these cycles. We have to break these intergenerational cycles of, you know, of these narratives, of these uh, modes of thinking, whereby, you know, safe and safety has been ingrained within us and normalized to mean police and policing, whereby safe and safety, it, it's really looked at in these Eurocentric terms that if we have police, then we're ultimately safe. But when in reality, um, healthy spaces do not need police and policing, right? So when we're actually looking at what the real issue is, is actually supporting um, healthy, equitable spaces for everyone. Yeah, and of course we're talking um, with Andrea uh, and she is from Laen, uh, Latinx, Afro-America, Abia Yala, Education Network. Uh, and the point was getting cops out of school, uh, police-free schools. Um, and I'm also talking to Jules Vodrick Hunter and she's sort of showing up for racial justice. And Jules, I wanna ask you somewhat of the same question. Um, when, when you say um, defund the police or even abolish the police, um, some folk get scared and think that means there's not gonna be anybody there for you when you really need someone and um, who's gonna protect us. So how do you kind of start dealing with that? Yeah, I mean, definitely as a white person, I never like understood that growing up. And um, I grew up in suburbia where there was no police in schools. So this has all been a learning that I've come to as I moved to Toronto and grew up. Um, and definitely now talking to white people in my life and family members, they it's really hard for them to understand why it's so important. Um, so I like to start with trying to explain like, the funding is going is not going into community. It's not funding community resources that help build safe communities. And it's actually making a lot of communities feel really unsafe um, and showing, having this, there's like an image going around about um, how much each, the police office, the police department gets compared to community services. And it's wild to see the, the amount of money that goes into policing. Um, and I think tying it into the kids event, showing kids that like they could have more climbers or more programs to go to or more um, activities to attend or seeing that everyone could have a safe home or a way to get to work safe um, and started to encourage them to imagine those things when they're young, especially because kids can imagine so many things. They haven't been, you know, in society that long. So um yeah, that's kind of where I like to go is using imagination and art to imagine a world where resources are redistributed. And by the, the time you hear this podcast, the event, uh, the kids event, getting police out of school uh, will already have happened. But uh, 
But as we're taping this, it hasn't happened yet. So what's going to happen at this event? Yeah, um, so we're going to share a little bit of info about police, but um, sort of explaining it at a kid's level. Um, and then we're going to ask them to imagine a world without police. And they can use drawings, writing, they can make TikToks, whatever sort of medium they like to explore. Um, and they're going to send it into us in whatever form they've made it. And we have some artists who are going to compile it into a zine um, and then send it to our city councillors ahead of the vote on February 18th. And hopefully, you know, some councils will see, oh, wow, even kids are imagining a world without police. Maybe I should take this seriously. Let's talk about the police reaction. Um, I, I didn't get really into that with you, Andrea, but um, what did you experience? Was there pushback? How did they push back? Yeah, so um, what we have seen, particularly from last year, there has been a lot more uh, folks understanding in regards to why this is essential and really actually looking at the intersectionality of what actually keeps communities um, healthy, right? And we're talking about having housing is a human right, right? Having, you know, our pharma care and dental care plan, right? Ensuring that no one goes hungry, having food justice, right? A lot of students' bellies are empty um, in educational spaces and outside of that, right? So it's really looking at, uh, once again, what Jules has mentioned is funding uh, and investing in those things that are actually supporting healthy, healthy communities. Uh, for us, uh, one of the main issues is it has been very, it has been made to seem as if this was only a Toronto issue, a, a Toronto district school board issue. Um, and so what we bring it back to is that, you know, the issue of police in schools, regardless of the name it's under, um, whether it be at K-12 or in post-secondary levels, and the, and the entrenchment of the school-to-prison pipeline, which most negatively impacts it, uh, Black, Indigenous, uh, disabled, um, and queer um, students and youth, and also among other intersection, intersectional markers, that it's not an isolated or local issue, right? This is not a one school board or one post-secondary campus issue. It is indeed a systemic issue, and it demands a systems response, a provincial strategy. And, and that's why at La N, from last year, we started our Police Free Schools Ontario-wide campaign to ensure that we have police-free schools across all educational levels, divest that funding, and ensure that we are investing um, not only in programs that support students, but also looking at decriminalizing and eliminating laws, legislation, and educational policies that criminalize students um, and enforce punitive disciplinary practices. And it's really about a paradigm shift from legislation that it that is anchored in punitive uh, practices and criminalization to one that's based on restorative and transformative justice practices that is healing-centered, and that is relationship-centered. So at the end of the day, we know that the provincial government, uh, once again, has the power and jurisdiction to bring forward. Uh, and we see other uh, places that are now doing this. So for instance, um, in, in Maryland, in the US, uh, we have Gabriel Acevedo, who's a Democrat that represents Montgomery County's 39th district in the Maryland House of Delegates, and Janelle Wilkins, a Democrat representing Montgomery County's 20th district in the Maryland House of Delegates that are introducing bills later this month. And one of those bills is actually a Police Free Schools Act at the state level as well. So this is possible. Um, and what we need to ensure to other folks is that not everybody has to be on board and not everybody will be on board and that's okay, but it doesn't mean that we stop 
but we're actually going to continue because we know that this is possible and that this is necessary. Uh, just a, a couple of, of stats to throw into the mix here. And you're, again, listening to the Radical Reverend Show. I'm your host, Sherry Genovo. I'm delighted to have Jules and Andrea on. They're, of course, uh, involved in the fight for racial justice, both of them. Um, one focused on the school system and the other more generally at the political level. The Toronto Police, for example, costs the taxpayers over a billion dollars. I mean, that's the one of the biggest chunks, if not the biggest chunk of the of the city budget. So um, when you're talking about moving some money away, um, it's a pretty big budget to start dipping into. The other reality in our school systems is that, of course, racialized students are more likely to be suspended, to be expelled, to uh, drop out, to, uh, et cetera. We know this. And that that in itself is proof of the racism in the system. Jules, I'm going to get back to you. And you've been engaged with talking to city councillors. And I think, you know, a lot of people have. I mean, it's it's been certainly a, a full court press to before the vote on the 18th in terms of the budget. What have you found? I mean, we know that at the city council, when defunding the police came forward before, uh, they voted against even a 10% drop in the police budget. Uh, and in fact, gave the police more money. They gave them money to buy body cams and and the pr- province and kind of doubled down and gave the OPP more money. So what do you think the difference is? Like, have you noticed a shift in the councillors? Yeah, I mean... I'm not too sure. I hope it's putting pressure on them. Um, I know for my ward, I'm in Anna Bylow's ward and I've never heard back from her. <laughs> um, so Anna Bylow, still waiting on an email from you or a phone call. But um, I'm hoping that the, the, you know, doing a zap every Monday for the last six weeks and if counselors are receiving, you know, we're sending 400 to 700 emails in on a Monday morning between 12 and one. I hope that the pressure they're feeling it and they're hearing from their constituents um, and that it's pushing them to reconsider why it's so important to defund the police. Um, but I'm, I'm honestly not sure where they're standing right now because I haven't heard back from anyone personally. And um, yeah. Yeah. I have to say a uh, shout out to Mike Layton. He's been very responsive when I've been in touch. Um, but then again, I kind of know him. He, he, you know, personal anecdote here. He worked on my very, my very first election campaign before he even thought of running. So uh, I've known him for a while. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is this is an uphill. It's an uphill battle. But I just want to say, uh, and Surge is the name of of Jules' organization, Show Up for Racial Justice, which, as you probably heard at the beginning of the show, is a organization to get um, white people involved in fighting for racial justice. Um, in terms of organizing, um, what you're doing is so spot on. I mean, it's a proven method of getting through to counselors and MPPs and MPs, and certainly on social media, and I'd say this to all of those people out there in social media, to amplify what they're doing is really important. Um, so keep doing it because I know from being a politician myself, politicians and their staff look at those letters, they look at those tweets, they look at all of that, and it's a de facto poll for them. And what do politicians all want that they have in common? They want to get reelected. <laughs> so when you're doing polling for them, they don't have to pay for it. They're like, oh, look, you know, another 50 emails on this. Or, oh, look, this, this tweet's gone viral. That kind of thing really does have an impact. So please out there in listener land, don't just listen, act. So, Andrea. 
going forward? What's next on your plate? I mean, you've had some significant wins. You want to make it province-wide. How are you organizing to do that now? I'm very interested in the hows as well as the whys. Yeah, definitely. Right now, what we have been doing since last year has been um, getting in contact uh, with um, the provincial government, um, with our MPPs. And we have been able, currently right now, um, myself as a lead provincial organizer, have been able to get some meetings um, with both the Green Party and the New Democratic Party, um, with um, police free school organizers, in, which are situated across the province to really, you know, nail it back home that this is a systems issue and we need a provincial response. Um, and actually currently right now, uh, post the meeting with the Ontario New Democratic Party, they are actually the only official party to have getting police out of educational spaces as part of uh, one of their policy paper, which is titled End Police Violence, Invest in Black, Indigenous and Racialized People's Lives. Uh, we are definitely going to be following up because we do want more specific language because we have seen the amount of excuses and narrative shifting that school boards um, are, are have been doing. Um, and so right now it's really placing the pressure on electoralizing this issue because we do know that police free schools is not just a singular issue, but it is very much interconnected to the reality that our um, educational systems have been underfunded underserved, under-resourced, understaffed for decades on end, uh, among uh, having a lesser of a safety net. We just have a few minutes left, and I promised I didn't want to talk about COVID too much. We've been talking about COVID way too much. Um, but, but to your point, Andrea, certainly um, COVID has really shown the shortfalls in our educational, public educational system, for sure, not, not to mention um, the racial inequality. Uh, Jules, what's ahead for you? What's ahead for Surge? After the vote on February 18th at the city council level, what then? Um, I'm sure there'll be a debrief and then uh, get to work and reorganize, re-strategize, see what, like, wherever things land after the vote, um, probably going from there. And, you know, we've really engaged a lot of mobilizers from the wards, and that's really exciting because now we have community members who are not necessarily part of Surge, but they're engaging in this work. Um, so it's, it's exciting to see that coming together and building that community. Well, thank you both for being on the Radical Reverend Show. And again, I want to thank uh, Jules uh, Vodrick Hunter. And Jules is with Show Up for Racial Justice. So if you want to get involved or you want more information, contact them. You'll just Google them, find them. <laughs> and then we have uh, also on the show uh, Andrea Vasquez Jimenez, the organization. It is La N. Latinx, Afro-Latin America, Abya Yala Education Network. So, uh, but L-A-E-N will get you in the door. So check them out, support them. If you have children in the educational system, if you're a student, if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, an educational worker, if you're anybody that cares about education, do support them too. And it's been wonderful having you on the show. Thank you so much to both of you. Thank you. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. We just finished uh, talking about getting cops out of schools, police-free schools, 
uh, with our former guests. And we're going to continue now with our left, left, or leftist panel, a little bit of an abbreviated panel today uh, with two members, Alex Grant, editor of Fight Back, and Ben Nolan, who's on the other side of the border uh, speaking to us from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, doctoral candidate date in poli-sci there. So both welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, back to. And um, let's get right into it because we don't have a lot of time. And I wanted to start off with a topic that Ben had suggested, which is current and all over the mainstream media, and that is vaccines and vaccine distribution. Um, we know that Pfizer made $15 billion last year, and this somehow is not causing a revolution. Why? Ben, weigh in. So what prompted me to propose this as a subject is reports out of the WTO that the bid by India and South Africa, the, the bid led by those two countries has been blocked by the wealthy countries, including Canada, for the intellectual property associated with COVID vaccines to be waived to allow them to produce these vaccines domestically in a way that wouldn't make them subject to basically putting more money in Pfizer's pocket. The rationale given for blocking this effort is that waiving this intellectual property would stifle innovation, which maybe makes some intuitive sense if you've read the logic of, you know, the free market, but overlooks the sort of the recent history of vaccine development and production which has seen that the privatization of that sector has actually reduced the capacity to innovate and produce all over the world. And notably in Canada, Trudeau noted recently that Canada used to be able to produce vaccines, but is no longer able to. This is the result of the privatization of that sector, largely and disinvestment from that sector. It has led to all of the labs that were world-renowned 30 years ago, having been either closed or shipped out of the country. And has made Canada very vulnerable. On paper, Canada has bought up rights to something like five times the number of vaccines that are necessary to vaccinate the entire population. But this has not actually borne so much fruit because the countries that are actually producing the vaccines have chosen to prioritize their own populations over passing them along to that. And now suddenly Canada is the only country to take vaccines from funds that are designed to help developing countries. And so we went from a situation where Canada could have been producing vaccines through these publicly supported institutions to one in which we are like tapping into this pool of vaccines that were meant for the developing world. Uh, we're literally taking vaccines out of the arms of people in poor countries. So Alex, weigh in. Yeah, th this is just another example of the totally parasitic uh, nature of the profit motive in capitalism that... Uh, vaccine production, we're in a you know, 100-year pandemic here. All of the forces of humanity uh, should unite to defeat this pandemic. And what you've got is these pharmaceutical companies making billions and billions of profit. They're refusing to remove the intellectual property. They're actually refusing to ramp up production to the maximum possible. They could... Every single lab and production facility on the planet should be producing these vaccines, but they're saying no, and they're actually limiting their investment into uh, productive capacity because they're not going to need it after uh, the pandemic is over. So they're thinking, well, why should we invest? Actually, if they can create a shortage, 
they make more profit. That's exactly what's happening. It is scandalous. A socialist system would be run totally differently. Uh, and they say they use these profits to invest. They don't actually. Most of the research is done in publicly funded universities. 90, 95% of the research is done by taxpayers in universities, by scientists. I used to be, uh, my background's in science. People don't do that for a profit. They do, they do, scientists do science because they want to find out about the universe and uh, cure the problems of society and humanity. They, it, this is just another example of the dead end of the system of the profit motive being put ahead of the lives of people. We used to have Connaught Labs. Um, Connaught Labs was publicly owned. Jonas Salk, you know, gave away his patent for a dollar. I mean, for nothing, essentially. The idea that, that you know, the stuff of life, well, we've already seen this in other instances with Monsanto and other large multinationals, but that the stuff of life can be patented is really quite bizarre and I think criminal. Ben, you wanted to make another point. Yeah, I mean, just to build on what Alex was saying, Oxford originally had committed to making the vaccine it developed publicly available and was talked out of it by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, who are often heralded as these big heroes of vaccination, but whose actual impact on the world is the development and enforcement of this incredibly strict intellectual property regime. And so Oxford signed a deal with AstraZeneca, and now it's basically an entirely for-profit venture. And far less vaccines are going to be produced as a result of it. And meanwhile, we wait. Uh, we wait in, in Canada and we're not alone in waiting. L let's move on from this topic. Alex, you raised uh, an issue around, uh, and we are all, we are all aware of this, uh, that Proud Boys, among many others, has now been designated a terrorist organization. I know federally NDP was pushing for this, so this is kind of a concession move by the Trudeau Liberals. But um, what interests you in this? Well, the amazing thing is the last time I spoke to you, Sherry, was about a month ago. And in, in that intervening time, we had the whole storming of the Capitol, the inauguration of Biden. Uh, everything's happened and it seems like it's forever ago, but we only spoke a few weeks back. Um, but the obviously the Proud Boys and other fascist organisations uh, played a nefarious role in storming the US Capitol, and people want something done about them. Absolutely, that's correct. About leading time to do something about them after you had uh, the, the FBI ignore them and allow them to do that. Actually, uh, cops on Capitol Hill allowed them to come in. We're taking selfies, selfies, and, uh, and then, and the same in Canada how actually Proud Boys have harassed um, uh, socialist activists, uh, members of my organization fight back um, over the number of years. And the police doesn't, they don't care. They absolutely didn't care. Uh, they've been playing an utterly harassing role. So are these people terrorists? Absolutely, they use terror for political ends. Absolutely. How do we manage it? And from this uh, very good incentive to look, we, we should actually take this seriously. Um, how do you actually manage it? The fact is you cannot defeat the far right who are you know, the front line of Blue Lives Matter supporting the state by appealing to those same police to police the far right. 
actually it's been revealed now that the head of the Proud Boys, um, or the other, I guess his co-head of the Proud Boys is the Gavin McGuinness, the Canadian one, but the other guy is actually a cop. He's an FBI informant. They had no problem. The, the, the police have got no problem with these uh, far righters. Actually, in um, I oh I forget I forget the name of one one of the cities with a uh, there was a Black Lives Matter movement. The police were referring to groups of Proud Boys as armed friendlies. Right, that's how the police view these people: is armed friendlies on their side. So appeal to the police is the wrong way of doing it. You deal with them by mobilizing working class people, oppressed people. They turn up in public. We, you know, they bring out a uh, hundred people. We bring out 10,000 people. And that's the way to deal with these uh, people to appeal to the state that, okay, the Proud Boys are a terrorist organization, but so are the FBI. So is CSIS. They are terrorist organizations and putting the Proud Boy on the terror, terrorist list, it's saying this giving more power to the state. So say more about the FBI and CSIS being terrorist organizations. I think listeners would be interested in that. Yes, absolutely. Well, the, the FBI has got an entire history of, uh, yes, infiltrating left-wing organizations, uh, of murdering, they murdered Fred Hampton from the Black Panthers, a whole series of funneling drugs into black communities, um, and uh, CSIS as well, and, uh, and um, the RCMP before have a whole tradition of infiltrating trade unions, they consider yeah they had lethal Overwatch against the Wet'suwet'en. They've uh, all all of these elements against working class people, against indigenous people, against black people, against socialists. Uh, in fact, they refused to release the RCMP files on Tommy Douglas to this day, to this day, because in there is a whole series of sabotage and COINTELPRO. Tommy Douglas, for Christ's sake, he's supposedly the greatest Canadian and they won't, re won't release it. Um, so it's, it's a huge mistake of the NDP to appeal to calling the Proud Boys terrorist because that will be used against workers, it'll be used against Indigenous, and it'll be used against Black Lives Matter. Which sounds on, uh, you know, when you say it counterintuitive, but I, I hear you, I hear you. I remember back in the days um, we were producing a socialist uh, paper and it turned out later that there was an RCMP agent working uh, working with, with us pretending to be one of us, which didn't really much matter. We just wanted to get the paper out. But as, long, <laughs> as long as he helped sell it, it's all good. Ben, weigh in on this. Uh, Proud Boys as terrorists. Well, I mean, to me, the grand irony was to see Bill Blair, of all people, at the podium announcing that this was going to happen. I mean, I, of course, remember Bill Blair from the G8 protests and the complete, like, police statification of Toronto being shaken down by cops just trying to get on a go bus to go visit my grandparents. Alex, I don't think mentioned the RCMP specifically, but the RCMP has collaborated in all of the things that he's mentioned. You know, I couldn't agree more. And, and this is why I'm very hesitant even to use the word terrorist, just because I'm not sure that it's particularly useful either in the domestic or the international context. I find it tends to shut people's brains down a little bit and justify focusing totally on a sort of enemy and just seeing evil in them rather than the larger sort of structures that are producing them. And the, the way they might, that our efforts, again, as Alex mentioned, 
uh, might actually serve counterproductively to reinforce the conditions that are productive of these sorts of threats. Uh, and again, I couldn't agree more that the proper response to this is a popular one. I mean, I think as we talked about uh, in our episode about January 6th, the answer to the crowd that stormed the Capitol captured the streets this summer, right? Like th- this was a force that was far greater than the force that took the Capitol and could be used to meet them. But unfortunately, Biden is terrified of popular power. Yeah, uh, just to, to weigh in here, um, of course, as we know, uh, listeners of the show, the RCMP was forumed to regulate the bodies of our indigenous and to herd them, you know, into reservations and to kill them, basically. Uh, I mean, that that's that was their uh, ideology. Um, to, to talk about the Capitol, uh, the Capitol protest or whatever it was, the coup attempt, um, although I guess that's giving them more credit than they're, than's due. Um, it was interesting. I just saw something about the breakdown of who these people were, because this is kind of this popular misconception, I think, that these were kind of workers, you know, like uh, your, you, you know, your average blue collar worker. Far from it. I mean, some of the, I mean, lots of cops, um, as Alex pointed out, but also um, real estate <laughs> developers and agents. This, you know, Ben, I think you mentioned it on a, a prior show that, you know, the, the the offspring of judges. I mean, there was this, this is petty bourgeois to use the term, um, you know, uprising if there ever was one. But um but yeah, Ben, you might want to take this away a little bit because one of the topics I wanted to to get your in, input on is since Biden, what's happened since Biden? <laughs> yeah, I think, are you talking about the article that was published in The Atlantic that had some demographic breakdown of, of January 6th? Yeah, it could be. Yeah, one thing that was really interesting to me about that article, although I found it very useful and clarifying, was that they didn't actually quantify or discuss the large amount of participation by people affiliated with either the police or the armed services, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, again, shouldn't maybe be so surprising considering The Atlantic is edited by Jeffrey Goldberg, who's a former IDF prison guard and was like one of the big rah-rah Iraq war um, cheerleaders. Uh, but what's happened since Biden has come into power? I mean, I, I want to give him credit for something that's pretty big, which is a commitment to draw down forces from Yemen or to sort of draw down support for Saudi and United Arab Emirates intervention or just brutal disaster of a war in Yemen. So I guess that's good. But, you know, as far as the day-to-day goes, I've seen no effect. Like the COVID rate has remained high. There's discussion of a policy to send everyone uh, masks to their house as if access to masks is the problem. There's no discussion whatsoever of paying people to stay home. A big priority has been, again, reopening schools like it has been in Canada. UMass, where I'm at, they've basically set it up so that all of the first years have in-person classes. We just had our first week of the semester. Surprise, surprise, it's the number one week for new COVID cases since the pandemic started. And this is only the first week. Every one of those positive cases, I am sure, infected half of the residents also. I think it's going to be a disaster in the weeks to come. What's happening on immigration? has been Biden has appointed a bunch of people to review immigration policies, again, against his commitment to immediately on day one by executive order reverse a lot of what Trump was doing at the border. Again, if he wanted to sort of highlight the cruelty of family separation, he could prosecute Stephen Miller, for example. That doesn't seem to be on the table. The roof checks now been negotiated down from $2,000 for in the first week 
to $1,400, maybe if you meet certain conditions, if you undergo a pretty humiliating means testing procedure, and this might happen in like a month. It feels like a state of constant crisis. Everyone that I know is kind of numb to it at this point, but doesn't cease to be staggered by it. It's not a good situation. <laughs> we were happy here, some of us were, that the pipeline was cancelled. It had sort of a, a sidelight um aspect to it, which showed Trudeau for being the non-green prime minister that he is, that he argued against it. Um, but Alex, weigh in since Biden. Well, kids are still in cages. I, I think the facilities that they're in are now called something different, but they're still kids in cages. But Biden is normal capitalism as opposed to uh, Trump's capitalism. And But we shouldn't forget for a moment what created Trump was dissatisfaction with the capitalism of the Obama-Biden years. That Biden creates Trump. And if the left becomes associated with Biden, then if you're opposed to the status quo, you will have no choice but to go back to Trump or whatever Trump inheritor is, because the, the far right is not going anywhere. And they will be the anti-establishment alternative if the left isn't. So the left cannot have anything to do with Biden. We must fight them. You know, it's like, you know, do you want to be punched in the face? Well, no. Okay, your choice, be punched in the face or stabbed in the gut. Well, being punched in the face isn't as bad as being stabbed in the gut. So I guess I'll be punched in the face. No, the correct answer is neither. Neither. We cannot support uh, Biden. There needs to be... America leads an America, a socialist Labour Party desperately that they need to break from the Democrats. And, and I think that alternative would be very, very popular. Should build it now, should have built it yesterday, should have built it 10 years ago. But get it done. Otherwise, we're going to be facing another Trump movement. Um, there, there are going to be huge fights under Biden. We shouldn't forget that Black Lives Matter uh, first appeared under Obama. And so there will be mass movements in the United States, I guarantee you. But it needs a political expression. Yeah. Ben, um, uh, a Democratic Socialist Party in the United States possible? Going to happen? Any moves? Um, there is one, but, you know, um, what's happening? It's difficult to say. Uh, I'm not tremendously optimistic in the short term, although, you know, the the, the need for it is pretty acute. And establishment institutions are really teetering and you know frankly i'm i'm not necessarily the best positioned person to know what's going to emerge as someone who's basically employed as a kind of bureaucrat devoted to the reproduction of the american middle or ruling class you know i don't think that the people working in the universities in paris necessarily anticipated the revolution that was coming Oh, come on now, just because you're an academic, you're not all bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I did think that this summer was extremely inspiring, but I think the problems are deeper than just with the party system in particular. But I think that they cut to the core of the American political institutional system. And so I hesitate to pin my hopes on the emergence of a social democratic party that can operate within the institutional structures that currently exists. You want to sort of say, what about AOC? What about Bernie? You know, 
obviously they didn't get cabinet postings, but what if, you know, could they be the, could they be the germ that, you know, erupts into a whole uh, new movement? I think they missed their opportunity, to be honest. AOC capitulated in terms of uh, forcing uh, vote on single payer and uh, and essentially has come into line with Nancy Pelosi. And and, and I don't think uh, uh, Sanders is, he's not going to lead something out of the Democrats. And, And so I think while they could play a secondary role, I think the movement has passed them by. The moment has passed them by. And... They're really, the Democrats are a dead end. And there is so much pressure from below saying that, but it does need an organized expression. I don't know exactly how it's going to turn out or exactly when, but I, if when there is uh, that opportunity, I think it will, be, it, will, it will be explosive in its impact. You're listening to the Radical Reverend show here if you were wondering what was going on out there in listener land. And I've got Alex Grant, editor of Fight Back and Ben Nolan, his doctoral candidate at University of Massachusetts at Amherst in political science. Alex, I'm going to throw this to you first. Uh, We're reopening schools. And now uh, the Ford government is making noise about reopening, period. Um, uh, We we just discovered we have over 100 um, variants. Of course, we don't do enough testing or tracing, so we really probably don't know, but um, at least that we know of. So we know uh, at the rate that variants are um, reproducing themselves, according to one statistician I tend to, to follow, um, it could be the major variant by the end of the month, even in February. And it certainly is in, in the UK, and it certainly is in South Africa, where they both have their versions of variants. Um, so you're a parent, Alex, the kids are going back to school. What? What are you thinking? Well, it's like right-wing politicians and corporations are like children who do not understand the concept of delayed gratification. Like, if we took the virus seriously, got the cases down to a level where it could be tracked and traced, like in New Zealand, like in Vietnam, countries like that where they're managing it with track and trace, then actually the economy could get up and running sooner but they 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 can't yeah they they can't wait they just want to reopen schools re- reopen businesses and in fact they're spreading the pain they're prolonging the pain uh, it's very very short sighted and what about teachers and the union like this is unsafe work yeah well the the union has been yeah mostly silent mostly silent and it, it's just they're going to be reopen. Uh, it's going to be what ne- um, next Monday, Monday the sixteenth, or Tuesday the sixteenth, I think is uh, the the day for opening schools. In Britain, the teachers union threatened to go on strike, and the government blinked and didn't reopen the schools. In Chicago, I, th- I don't know whether the strike started already, but uh, they're forcing the teachers in, and and uh, the teachers are going on strike in Chicago. It can be done, but the the unions are com- totally silent. You know. The, the government is sitting on what two and a half, three billion dollars of money from the feds. That should go to half the class sizes. Class size is no bigger than 16. There needs to be mass testing, asymptomatic testing in schools. And that's the only way to reopen, right? And, and the case, general case level in society needs to be way lower. It's still, I think, cases today. 
Well, there's, there's still somewhere between one and 2,000 a day in Ontario. So this, this is way too high. And uh, we, we need to be getting it down, you know, less than 100, less than 50, so, and then hire thousands and thousands of, of tracers so we can uh, put down the embers. Yeah. Um, ben, maybe you could weigh in on, uh, uh, on the role of unions, just not only in schools, but throughout. I mean, I've, I've said this before on the show and with other panelists, um, if ever there was a time for a general strike, uh, it seems now. I mean, you've got it, from Amazon workers to now doing double shifts or something horrendous to, um, to teachers, to education workers, to beleaguered, you know, personal support workers and long-term care. I mean, uh, to, to everyone basically who's performing essential work, um, putting their lives on the line. Um, so why do we not see more strikes? Ben, any thoughts? I mean, one thing I've been thinking about, I, I mentioned to you a couple of episodes ago that there's been a unionization drive at an Amazon facility in Alabama which gets reported on as if this is this great surprise, like Alabama places. And it had me thinking about why it's not a facility in more sort of union dense areas like the Northeast or the Midwest. And it occurred to me that these are areas that are dominated again by democratic political establishments that while they might have a union leader on one shoulder whispering to them what they want to do, on the other shoulder, they have Amazon. And so there's a degree to which the higher-ups of a lot of these big unions, especially in the States, but probably also in Canada, have been integrated into the government uh, administration to such an extent that they're hardly antagonistic to it, or there's all kinds of fail-safes to keep them from being particularly antagonistic to it, which means that there are opportunities. They're popping up in these unexpected places. I mean, where were the big teachers' uprisings in the States a couple of years ago? They were in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Arizona, not, you know, conventional Democratic strongholds. And they turned out hundreds of thousands of people. It was really inspiring. And so I'm wondering if we need to sort of be critical of how cozy a lot of the union leadership has gotten in these more established areas with the sort of governing authorities. I heard uh, from one union activist here in the education front, we shall remain nameless, that he thought that the, the fear was that if they did go on strike in Ontario with a, such an anti-union government, uh, one that uh, repeatedly um, gives out misinformation about what's happening in the schools, um, that they'd simply move to privatizing and voucher systems and then just simply say, great, see ya, to, uh, uh, and that was the fear. Uh, to which my response was, I guess, you know, but that's even more of a reason to go on strike, right. you know, because that's your only real tool, you know, when it comes down to it. But anyway, um, yeah, uh, we got like a minute uh, or two left and so much more we could cover. Um, uh, just want to, you know, like throw out, uh, because we talked about in the first half of the show, this defunding the police um, uh, call, which is the major call from Black Lives Matter. And uh, there's still fear around the words, although there's some pilot projects happening. There's one in Toronto that just got voted on, very small in, in one part of the city, but at least where mental health uh, workers can be called rather than police for mental health calls. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Um, uh, any successes? I mean, in the States, actually, there seem to be more successes on that front than there are in Canada. Ben? 
Yeah, I mean, there's been some efforts at, uh, at universities and some municipalities. I think there's been some progress in Minneapolis. I'm not sure how permanent these changes are going to be or whether they're just waiting for people to be paying attention a little bit less to then just ramp everything back up. And the overwhelming consensus within the sort of beating heart of the Democratic Party is the defund the police as a slogan was bad and was why the election was as close as it was and led to a bunch of blue dog Democrats losing their seats in Congress. None of these claims have any particular basis, in fact, uh, and can be refuted by looking at any of the number of pro-defund politicians who did extremely well and who actually turned out people that ended up tipping the balance. I'm thinking of like Rashida Tlaib and uh, Ilhan Omar, who turned out boots on the ground to win Minnesota and Michigan for Biden decisively. So, you know, I'm not particularly optimistic, and I think we need to think critically about whether this slogan is going to have the legs that we hope that it did. Although, you know, absolutely the belief should be defunded. It's, it's, it's ludicrous how much of society's resources goes into the militarization of these institutions. Alex, last words. Well, I think it's good that police have been taken out of welfare checks in uh, Toronto. But we have to understand the police cannot be reformed. They are built to defend capitalism. And if you want to get rid of the racist police, you have to get rid of the racist capitalism and you have to fight for socialism. And, and I, think, I think that's the movement has got to be tied to a socialist perspective, a society run by working class people where security uh, is, is organized by and from working class people and working class organizations. Well, on that note, we'll give it a wrap here on the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you so much, Alex Grant from Fight Back and Ben Nolan, University of Massachusetts Amherst for weighing in. Till next time on the Radical Reverend Show. Mm-hmm.